everyone, Don Willemont and Matt Wakeham. Well, we thought we'd take a couple of minutes before we get started on the actual podcast of the Cutbanks Conversation to sort of set the stage how we got here in a little bit about what you can expect uh, from the conversations we're about to have. Um, Matt, let's talk a little bit about your background. And uh, I mean, it's my passion project. We work together at, the, at Wood Wheaton, but uh, let's talk a little bit about your role in this, uh, in this puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the uh, the audio engineer slash uh, producer for the Cutbanks Conversations. I've always kind of had my fingers in media, you know, especially going up through high school, whether it was doing recordings on uh, an old camcorder, audio recordings. I've always been playing around with YouTube. Uh, so it's always been a, a big interest of mine. So with Matt's expertise and his Matt being a non-hunter, non-angler, he's a neutral party. He also uh, turns into a great sounding board, not just in the editing, but uh, as we put the content out, as the conversation unfolds, uh, we have Matt to, to use as somebody that could be considered one of the uninitiated listeners that, that may end up interacting with the podcast. As the uh, podcast goes forward, remember that we aren't experts. We're not biologists. This is uh, a combination of the best research that we can do, our own uh, opinions, our own experiences. And as the as the conversation unfolds and as time moves forward, you know, hopefully do, we'll do a better job stick handling uh, some of the subject matter. I would suggest that episode one is a 10,000 foot view when we talk about wolves. We're not necessarily going to get into the weeds and everything that you might be hoping that we're going to cover, but there's lots of room uh, in episodes moving forward where we can cover off some of that material. We've done uh, a, a lot of homework to get here. Um, you know, Matt and I are recording this kind of post our first round, so we kind of liked what we heard. We're doing a little bit of editing. Uh, but we just thought we'd take a minute just to kind of lay the landscape for what you're about to listen to. So grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and enjoy a couple of hours of uh, some of us talking a little bit about wolves. Cheers. Good evening and welcome to the Cutbanks Conversations, a podcast about hunting, fishing, and conservation issues in the province of British Columbia. I'm Don Willimont, one of your hosts. Uh, we are here coming to you almost live from the Spruce City Wildlife Association hatchery on River Road in Prince George in the shadows of the beautiful Cutbanks along the shores of the Nechaco River. I know I paint a spectacular picture for everybody, but it's awesome to be here. We are in a COVID-compliant uh, environment with everybody carefully spaced at two-meter intervals and everybody doing single-file stuff. I've sterilized the facility thoroughly. Thank you to the people at Clorox for providing me all of that wonderful cleaning material so we make a safe environment for everybody. Uh, we're going to go around the table and introduce everybody that's going to be on the podcast. that are going to be part of our regular uh, crew of debaters and discussers and people that will bring wisdom, information, and maybe a little frustration into your lives as we sit and dialogue about some of the things that are important and near and dear to all of us. On the line, coughing from his couch, our friend Steve Hamilton. Steve, say hello and introduce yourself to the folks. I will lay it out on the line that I, it is not a COVID cough. I am pretty sure of that anyway. Very good. Uh, I am doing Doing the good thing and socially isolating at home, keeping all my friends and compadres at the hatchery nice and safe, whether or not they like it. So anyway, my name is Steve Hamilton, and I am the president of Spruce City Wildlife Association and a life member of the Wild Sheep Society. And I've been involved pretty heavily in uh, fish and wildlife for probably going on five years now. Steve, you're also a trapper. You also participate in the... I think the the cattle comp, pardon me the Cattlemen's Association compensation program. I think you do uh, lots of stuff uh, with that as well. 
Yes, I do. I am a trapper. I always forget to leave that out, whether or not it's intentional or <laughs> a little bit unintentional. It's just one of those things that I kind of am, so I don't talk about it. But yes, I am involved with the uh, compensation program for the cattlemen, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. We absolutely will. Many of you will recognize the next person I'm going to introduce. He is a member of the provincial legislature, of which I happen to be the Riding Association president. A good friend of mine, uh, Mike Morris, MLA. Yeah, no, my pleasure to be here uh, to participate in this. Uh, as you said, uh, MLA, uh, I got elected in 2013, but I've got a definite interest in wildlife. I've been a trapper for over 40 years, a hunter, a fisherman, uh, and I've actually hunted and fished and trapped the same area since about the early 1970s. So I've wow. seen a significant change in in uh, the environment and the biodiversity aspects that we have around here. I'm a retired RCMP member as well. I spent 32 years in the RCMP and retired as a district officer in charge of policing for the northern 80% of the province in oh, wow. 2005. I uh, started my career in the RCMP here in Prince George in 1973 as well. Born in Quinnell, uh, raised in British Columbia, went to a dozen different schools through grade 1 to 12. Uh, lived in the Chilcotin, uh, hunted and fished and trapped uh, pretty much all my life in the woods. Perfect. We needed a resident expert, somebody that actually knows what they're talking about for this podcast. So that's why Mike's here to color out amongst all us hacks. Our other guest and another one of my very good friends, all of our good friends, uh, Michael Schneider. Michael. Hello, hello. Yeah, I'm guide outfitter in BC for 33 years. I've uh, been trapping only for the last three years. My passion is definitely for wildlife, fish, and the habitat they need to uh, survive on. Having come from another country or continent even, really treasure and see it as a huge privilege to live here. It's a phenomenal place to be. And some of the changes that are, as they occur on the landscape are, are pretty dramatic and um, tend to spark my interest from time to time. I'm also uh, um, on the board of directors of the Guide Outfitters Association of BC, have been on the executive for nine years and try to bring positive influence to wildlife management to the province through that and lobby for wildlife and like I said before all the things they need to be there. Yeah very much so Michael and I have worked together on the uh, Omanika Wildlife Action Roundtable uh, which is where really we really started to kind of get to know each other well and we've been doing lots of work in, including with First Nations. Uh, one of our other partners in crime Dustin Snyder introduce yourself to the folks. Hey everybody, Dustin here. I'm the Vice President for the Spruce City Wildlife Association. I also chair our Fisheries Committee for Spruce City Wildlife. My day job, I actually manage two small fast food joints. I've been involved in uh, Spruce City Wildlife for right around five years now, uh, mostly focused on the salmon side of things, but I am an avid outdoorsman. I like hunting and fishing and uh, just being outside camping. I've got two little ones and like to bring them along and get them involved in the mess and, and all kinds of good stuff. So, so yeah, I'm also involved in CHAB, uh, uh, which is the Salmonid Enhancement and Habitat Advisory Board. And yeah, I have just uh, a keen interest in the outdoors and, and uh, like being a part of it. Awesome. Well, the one non-hunting fishing member of our crew of our little band of ne'er-do-wells here is Matt Wakeham. Matt is our producer. Matt, say hello to everybody. Hello, hello. Yeah, I am Matt. Uh, Don and I actually have another podcast together, and I run the social media for uh, the dealership as well. Super happy to be here, and uh, I'll be the resident gear nerd for the duration of this podcast. That's awesome. Uh, that leaves me, the one hack in the room. So, a transplant to British Columbia, although I was originally born here, believe it or not. 
Uh, I am from Saskatchewan. I am an uh, avid outdoors person. I am a terrible fisherman. I'm an even worse hunter, but I'm extremely passionate about uh, all of those things. I've been a member of Spruce City Wildlife Association for well, pretty much since I moved here, which is where Steve and I first met and became hunting partners. And all of these folks around this table have all become dear friends of mine. And we are all, uni- I, I guess, uh, we are gathered together for a common purpose. And we've all worked towards uh, the betterment of fish and wildlife and better habitat on the BC landscape. So speaking of the BC landscape, the elephant in the room, pretty much the elephant in the province, the elephant on the planet, the thing that is affecting us right now, not the subject of today's podcast, but I think uh, we should take a few minutes to maybe talk a little bit about it. Uh, We'll start with you, Mike Morris. We have got a new reality, the COVID reality. Let's talk a little bit about uh, how you find that impacting life in British Columbia. Well, impacting life in the world. I think our entire world uh, economic landscape is going to change significantly from what it was pre-COVID. You know, it's affecting small business, big business, individuals. Ne- you know, never in the history uh, of British Columbia, of Canada, of, of the world, quite frankly, uh, since the 1918 era, when the Spanish flu hit us, have we had a pandemic that affects everybody so quickly and so fast and so deadly at the end of the day as well. So uh, everybody's uh, huddled up in isolation in their homes, uh, trying to stay safe. Businesses are shut down. People aren't working. The federal government is pulling the stops out. The province is pulling the stops out on on aid packages uh, for all the various groups that have been affected by this. And, and uh, you know, hopefully we'll be over this uh, or at least see an end in sight to it by the fall. You know, a vaccine will be circulated hopefully by early next year and uh, we can put an end to it. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, when we take a look at that, Dustin, speaking of small business, you, you, you own and run a couple of small businesses. How has this affected you? Uh, well, I'm currently out of a job. Right. <laughs> Besides right. the job of uh, now homeschooling my kids, uh, which is a heck of a lot uh, more different and uh, frankly more difficult. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, we, uh, you know, our operations are very small, um, kind of tight knit. Rent is really high. So uh, the opportunity to physically distance ourselves from coworkers, that sort of stuff within the, the within the restaurant, within the kitchen just isn't possible. So we, I think I'm uh, maybe a day or two over three weeks now that uh, that those stores have been shut down and that we're just kind of waiting it out. Nothing else we can do. Nothing else you can do. Mr. Snyder, this is a, this is probably for you. This is a, this will have maybe farther reaching implications. How has it affected guiding for you in, in terms of what the season looks like? Uh, as we roll into spring bear season right now. And what do you think it looks like for the rest of the 2020 uh, hunting season? Yeah, it's definitely uh, unprecedented. At least people that are alive on this planet today probably don't have any examples that are even close to this. From the tourism perspective, I think it'll be, as, as we keep talking about it, we're realizing that this will be one of the last things that might come back to life because it involves people traveling from one country to another or from many countries into this this place and um, at the end of the day tourists have to be able to come here and not be scared of traveling and it looks like right now that for for sure this uh, spring won't be happening and there is a likelihood that the fall uh, isn't happening either that basically means no income for a whole year we're looking at uh, the different you know money or bailout packages that uh, uh, or assistance packages government is offering to small business so far we haven't found um, our way through them yet to see if it alleviates the 
financial struggles for our um, industry or businesses. So uh, we'll we'll see. You know, rolls out and then, yeah. If if there is no help, <clears throat> there's definitely no income, no business. Uh, there'll be lots of you know economic casualties. Steve, um, if we take a look at just from from the, just the hunting's perspective, from a legislation standpoint, what what sort of things can we expect uh, in the immediate future? What sort of changes has the the province made to hunting regulations? As of uh, March 28th, there, there's been nothing legislated. But uh, as we know, the provincial health officer Bonnie Henry, what she says goes. It can be legislated the minute she says it. But the guidelines as of March 28th are: if they want you to fish and hunt locally we need to know what that means. Does that mean 15 minutes from home or does that mean in your MU? So we're going to be looking for some clarification on that. We advise everybody that is going to be venturing into the backcountry to follow the, the Flynnrow website and check for this in real-time update. Because as we know, regulations in print, those are just guidelines for what uh, you're supposed to be checking before heading out into the field online. They want you to maintain physical distancing, which we're all doing right now, hopefully. And another one that might be a little difficult for some people is they do not want you to share vehicles with people outside of your family or others you do not live with. So somebody like me and Donnie, friends for a bunch of years, we hunt a lot together. That's going to be a tough one. How that's going to look? Well, we're hoping that uh, in the next few weeks, things settle down here in D.C. As they did announce earlier today, that we have declined again in known cases. So we are on a downhill slide. Have we flattened that curve? Let's hope so. Everybody keep doing what you're doing. Be safe about it. We'll be, we'll be back to normal, hopefully uh, pretty soon. Okay, let me set the stage for today's episode. We'll be looking at wolves and their relationships, value and impacts on hunting, uh, trapping and wildlife management policy in British Columbia. A lot of this discussion will revolve around our individual observations, experiences, and opinions. Our goal is simply to present our different perspectives as we reflect on how, when, and where wolves intersect, impact, or conflict with not only our hunting community, but with society and even within our own lives. Uh, This is a topic too big for one episode, and we will revisit this subject in future episodes to expand the dialogue beyond what we're going to cover here today. Wolves and humans have coexisted for thousands of years in North America. In the centuries before European settlement, there is historical and archaeological evidence that illustrates that First Nations peoples used controlled burns to manage landscapes to enhance hunting success for game. In areas with low game densities from predation by wolves or other predators, they also adopted predator management strategies by killing wolves and bears to help enhance game populations. These represent some of the earliest examples of wildlife management on our continent. European settlement in North America began a transformation on the land base that would impact wildlife and wild lands forever. Early colonization cast off some of the European conventions around hunting, as settlers could now hunt freely on a landscape no longer restrained by legal tenants that protected hunting as a privilege for nobility, landowners, and or kings. This brought an entirely new population of hunters to the woods. Market hunting, the fur trade, and the exploration of the West brought settlers across the Mississippi, the Missouri, and the Red River into the Western Plains and Rockies. In the wake of this steady expansion, wildlife populations were decimated in the U.S. and parts of Canada. Casualties of commercial hunting, the clearing and conversion of land for crops, livestock, forestry, social, and industrial development. The conservation movement is born at the turn of the 20th century. As the devastating impacts on wildlife become apparent, a new focus on rebuilding and protecting wildlife and habitat begins. With game populations reeling, it was clear that a number of measures would need to be engaged to recover wildlife. 
predation uh, would need to be mitigated to achieve recovery goals, and it is here that the war on coyotes and wolves actually began. Bounties, poison, aerial gunning, sterilization, trapping, relocation have all been employed over the last 120 years or more to mitigate wolf populations. Wolves were all but exterminated in the lower 48 states and were drastically reduced in Canada over that time. The creation of the Endangered Species Act in the United States in 1973 and the subsequent listing of wolves as endangered in 1978 lifted wolves and their persecution into public debate where it has remained ever since. Wolf recovery in the U.S. and efforts in Canada to keep wolves protected from hunting and lethal management have increased in not only their volume in the media, but in their pervasiveness in public and social debate. Caribou, moose, and deer declines over the last three and a half decades in British Columbia have put wolves at the center of a controversy where it serves as both villain and victim in a fierce debate amidst competing ideologies, science, and policy. It continues to be an intensive and impassioned dialogue that includes government, wildlife managers, biologists, outfitters, trappers, First Nations, resident hunters, ranchers, anti-hunting, animal rights, and environmental groups, as well as everyday people like you and me, all trying to find a solution that adequately represents their interests and the interests of wolves. And that's where we jump into things. Over this timeline from the 1970s, which I would think now, you know, for Mike and Mike, uh, you guys were hunting, Michael, it's been 30 some years you've been on the landscape. All of that time as a guide, Michael? Yep. Okay. So if we look back to game populations specifically, if we looked at, you know, moose, elk, which were later introduction, but moose, caribou populations specifically in the north, we would say that there was a high water mark would have been coming out of the late 70s, early 80s in terms of what that looked like on the landscape. Would that be fair? I guess so. I've been active since 87, so I can only give you that picture. And I can only give you that picture on the areas specific territory that I'm guiding on, but I can give you a really good picture on those grounds because I spent two to 250 days a year in there. The rest of the knowledge I have is uh, from my colleagues throughout the province. And um, interestingly enough, they tell a very similar story, but it's still just hearsay. Having looked at um, the rundown that you've given, there's a whole bunch of different points I'm sure we're going to get back to. But um, there was definitely a high in the moose population or anglet populations and in, in, in the area where I'm at on the moose populations in the, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and, and then you could see a steep decline. In the time past that. And Mike, would you, uh, so a lot of the hunting and your, your trapping territory is in that Merton Lake, Davy Lake area, I believe. Is that, am I correct? Yep. It is. And pretty much, you know, I was stationed in Fort St. James in the early 70s to late 70s. And uh, so I hunted and trapped around that area as well as in the area that I'm in right now, Merton Lake, Slender Lake, uh, that whole uh, area. And it, it's, you know, I, I agree with um, Mike Schneider. Moose hunting back in the 80s, uh, everybody got their moose. You know, I, I fed my family on moose meat for 30 years and I never had any trouble getting a moose at all or an elk or whatever the, uh, the species was uh, that we we're looking for. But it was into the 1990s that uh, I started seeing a pretty significant decline in the availability of moose and into the 2000s to the point where now in my trapping, you know, I could go out, I could leave Prince George uh, in my pickup truck to go trapping and I would see moose tracks all along the highway here north to Bear Lake uh, to the 200 road. And then in the 200 road, and I would see live moose uh, just about every trip. Probably for the last 10 years, I hardly see a track along the highway north to Bear Lake. And I, I very, very seldom see a live moose out on the trap line. Uh, through the 2000s, I saw lots of dead moose from, from uh, wolf kill. 
but uh, the population declined significantly uh, in the late 80s into the 90s, yeah. Steve, you've been hunting in British Columbia. How long have you been hunting for? Because you're a transplant from the Lower Mainland, right? Yeah, I am. Don't hold that against me. <laughs> um, I, I Actually, my, my first recollection of going out hunting was about eight years old uh, with my grandfather and my great uncle. And then I, I, I kind of fell off for a little bit. I, I got into it when I moved up to Prince George about 12 years ago. And as uh, Mike just said, even... 12 years ago, it was nothing to go out into the bush with a, a draw and say, oh, well, there's a moose. Uh, no, I'll wait. I'll wait. I, I, it was shopping back then. Uh, the moose were all over the landscape. And you you saw it with me last year with the draw. We we worked hard and we saw next to no sign. So I, I do agree that things have gone right downhill with moose in the area over the last 10, 15 years. So a couple of things to that. The reason I'm, I'm I'm kind of I'm standing on moose populations because moose specifically, uh, at least for Region Seven, and it, it will be different in different parts of the province. But if we're talking about wolves, one of the reasons that moose become topical in this region is the moose decline. The connective tissue is mortality on on moose. Uh, you're looking at about fifty percent of their mortality uh, is attributed to wolves. And I understand that, you know, when we're looking for something that's causative, when something that we're, when the normal is not normal, we need to have some kind of a cause that produced the effect. And the thing that people focus on is the percentage uh, of the mortality that is attributed to wolves. Wolves are predators. That, that's the role that they play. It should be no surprise, however, to anybody that wolves kill moose or wolves kill caribou or wolves kill mule deer or white-tailed deer or wherever it is that they find other ungulates. That's how they survive. But what is interesting about it is in, in doing so, and when we look at recovery programs, when we look at management programs, and w- what we look at in public reaction is when we are when we are confronted with the mortality of an ungulate, if you're, if you're Michael Schneider, you're looking at not just um, that's not meat in the freezer. You're looking at that's also not revenue because part of what you do is, is you, you host hunts for, for moose and that's part of your business. Uh, if you're First Nations, you're going to be looking at you know, the, the lack of moose on the landscape because that's part of sustenance. Not just, it's not just uh, a traditional value. It's part of how you feed your family. If you're a resident hunter, you know, consumption of a moose or consumption of an elk or consumption of a caribou, you know, whatever it is that you're hunting. If there's something less than what you're used to, you're going to look for what's that thing that's causing it. I'm always curious about that conversation because, you know, it's interesting that that wolves get painted. And I mean, have it, in my opinion, there's a very heavy handed villainy that gets painted around wolves because, <laughs> because it's the thing that stands out the most in all of the mortality. Because it's the one thing that we also think that we can contain. And the reason is, is because we can manage for that. Uh, Let's just talk a little bit about population. If we just look at population for wolves in Canada, across Canada, you're looking at about 60,000 wolves. You know, you're looking at Northwest Territories, you know, fluctuates around 7 to 8,000, about 9,000 in Ontario. We, depending on the modeling system that you use, are going to be between 5,300 and 8,000. I'm going to use about 6,500 for more recent numbers. That's about the, the, the number of wolves that we have, which is a fairly healthy population. Now, wolves are not uh, considered, they're not considered a threatened species. They're not in, they're, there could be one province in Canada where they would might be even uh, a, a species of concern. 
So wolves on the landscape in Canada are not at risk of being endangered, extinct, or extirpated. That's, that's not a risk. There's a fairly healthy density of wolves throughout the province. So from a population level, uh, we have a very, very viable population. Uh, you'll only find more wolves perhaps in Russia and similar amounts in Alaska. So from a population level, you know, it, it's, a, it's a fairly healthy population. The problem is, is it doesn't take a lot of wolves to have a lot of impact. And that's one of the things as I've prepped for this program that I've started to realize. I think it's, uh, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's Val Geist that said a sprinkling of wolves is about as much as we can handle. That was Val. Yeah, I think that was Val. Uh, but the first discussion, everybody's intersection with wolves has probably been different. I know for me personally, uh, I, I'll share mine last. Dustin, uh, how much interaction have you had with wolves in a wild landscape? Very little, to be honest with you. I've, uh, I think, you know, out, out hunting, I've only seen wolves maybe twice. I see tracks. I, I never see the wolves themselves, um, but right. uh, they probably see me. They probably <laughs> but, see you. Uh, they can probably see a heck of a lot better than I can. So yeah, but, uh, but very, very little. Very little. Mike, what's your first recollection? Uh, your first in- real engagement with wolves? Memorable one? Oh, I've had several memorable engagements with wolves over the years. Uh, I've trapped lots of them, uh, mostly by snare. Right. And, uh, but I, I had one incident here about 20 years ago. I, had, I was out um, checking a bunch of my sets for trapping, and it was hunting season. So I stopped on a favorite swamp, and I was calling moose, and I heard lots of sound around, so there was critters around. But it got quite dark on me, and I had about another half a mile to walk back to my cabin. So I started walking back, and I was... I noticed there was something on the trail about 15 feet in front of me and I stopped and looked at it and it was a calf. And right in behind it, I could see the cow just slightly. It was quite dark out. And uh, they would look at me and then they would turn and look the other way down the trail. And I wondered what they were looking at. They weren't shocked by my presence at all. And then they kind of wandered off into the bush. I had about, uh, oh, about a five minute walk to get to my cabin from where I was at that time. And uh, so I took two or three steps, and this wolf just growled. He was standing right beside me. I couldn't see him. I was in the bush. And he followed me right back to the cabin, just growling and snarling at my feet. Uh, I had my 30-30 with me, and, uh, but it was dark. So <laughs> the, the hair on the back of my neck was standing up pretty good. And he growled at me. I walked up on the steps of my cabin, and he growled and snarled at me. He was probably only about 20 feet away, but it was too dark to see him. And the only time uh, that he quit was when I heard my sons coming in on the quads. And as soon as he heard the quads, it was just like turning the sound off on the TV and he disappeared. But uh, up close and personal, and I'd seen that wolf, I'm sure it's the same one, uh, chasing uh, moose out onto the lake where my trapline cabin was. And uh, um, several times that summer, I had seen the the wolf chase a cow or a calf out onto the lake to try and get it. And uh, each time the the animal got away, uh, lots of wolves around. If, and this is probably not a fair question, but if you, if you had to characterize wolves from your perspective as a trapper, as a hunter, uh, and, and I know you spend a lot of time out at your cabin. So, you, I mean, you see a lot of backcountry. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Or are you a, if you had to be a pro-wolf or an anti-wolf, or are you kind of a neutral kind of wolf guy? No, I, I pay them a lot of respect. They're a very intelligent animal, right? and uh, they're a wild animal. We have all kinds of wild animals around, and they have their place. There's no question about it. They're probably one of the best hunters in the wildlife that sector that we have in, in BC. And I've seen them bring moose down, and I've seen how they do it. I've set up my traps and my snares for them. Uh, they're very wily. You have to be very particular in how you make your sets uh, in order to be successful at it. 
Uh, so I have a lot of respect for them, but they're very prolific as well. And if they have lots of game around, uh, they'll multiply like rabbits right. and uh, they become a real problem at the end of the day. Uh, I think half of my beaver population on my trap line uh, was decimated by the wolves because the moose population disappeared. So they started grabbing whatever else was handy. You bet. Michael, I would think um, your own experience with wolves, now you have some European context, I suppose, as well. But uniquely in your business, I know one of the things that you've had to do is wolves, whether they're nice to see or nice to hear for you, you've had to take some more heavy-handed measures to protect the other part of your business, which means your interaction with wolves sometimes isn't a warm and fuzzy. Well, I love wolves. Um, they're awesome. I mean, sitting at you know in front of a cabin at a lake, the dog howling with them all night long. I've done that with clients, <laughs> and it's an experience you'll never forget. When we started in 1987, the first 10 years, I would go into this one particular lake every year for a month, and I, I almost knew them, right? I mean, you, you just know where they are and where they come from, when they come back around, where you see them and stuff. It was all sustainable, though. Uh, we saw lots of moose at the time. There was a balance of sorts, and, and the landscape has changed since, but that may be just a coincidence, but... The fact is today. <laughs> that was a pregnant question. That was a pregnant statement, pardon me, but we're going to get into that. So There's a million different reasons. And, and so everything has changed on the landscape since. And long story short, I was actually approached by the local First Nations uh, family who uh, trapline um, I'm operating on as an outfitter as well. And they basically asked me if I, I could... Um, start trapping wolves uh, and, and target them specifically because they weren't able to feed their family with moose anymore the way they used to. It, it became more difficult to get moose. Uh, it wasn't enough meat for the family and it still is. It's an issue um, which begs a whole bunch of other questions. But at the end of the day, from a business perspective, you know, you, you need wildlife to um, have tourists come and experience British Columbia, experience the wildlife. Not about killing an animal um it it may be the reason for a hunter to come but lots of them bring family lots of them come back um when they don't get something and they've seen lots of animals they love to come back um if somebody i keep telling the story comes and uh, hunts with you for 10 days and they see nothing and until the very last day they may see one moose and they shoot that moose they have a problem telling their friends to go there because they felt like they shot the last moose <laughs> right so but if they would have seen moose or had hurt them, you know, in running situations, calling them in and stuff and uh, not got one, they'll come back. They'll recommend you and they'll say it's a great place to go. So it all has to do with some kind of a, I, I, I guess I keep calling it a demand uh, and supply. So if there's First Nations demand, uh, which obviously exists and have a legal right, to, uh, and, and there's a resident hunting opportunity that is, uh, there's a demand for resident hunters to go out and hunt, and you have you know the, the, the commercial sector outfitters to supply a product to the clients and experience that kind of needs, uh, you know, everything pivots around the animal. But at the end of the day, if that's not there, then, um, you know, what are we managing for? And, and I feel sorry for the managers at times because I'm not sure that uh, they've got clear mandates of what they're allowed to manage for, even though they may feel like they want to do a few more things and they can't. And I, and, but part of that, so part of what impedes our ability to manage um, and the levers that we get to pull, when we come to wolves, there may be decisions that you want to make because you might recognize, and the science is conflicting. So um, some science will suggest that heavy-handed management of, of a, a predator like a wolf does not necessarily net the result that uh, other people think it does. 
And then there's, you know, there's counterpoints to that. There's other studies that say that they do. But there's a social part of that, like a lot of things. So if, you know, if a wildlife manager says, okay, well, we have to, like they've done in the, uh, in the Williston Basin, uh, you know, when, with uh, the Moberly and the Salto First Nations and the, the, the Caribou Recovery Program, they made a decision, you know, to actively, you know, to kill wolves, to, to get that, that number down. The problem is there's a lot of social follow. We're going to get there in just, a, in just a little bit. Steve, your first recollection of wolves in your life, because you've only uh, you, you came out from the Lower Mainland, you've been hunting here. You and I have done some wolf work together, because you do have you had done some uh, trapping, particularly in the livestock program. But what's your first recollection or interaction with wolves? Growing up in the city, it it was Disney, it was TV, it was Farley Mowat, and all the, those fairy tales, and they were a, a beautiful and amazing animal to see on TV. And when I moved up here, it didn't take me long when I was exploring the back road up behind uh, Bear Lake to, to actually see them. And I, I pulled over with my girlfriend, who's my now wife, and I said, wow, look at that. And there was probably six or seven of them standing in the middle of the road. And I didn't really clue into what I was seeing. And then I clued in. I was like, oh, wow, those, those are wolves. It, it was surreal. And the more and more I got involved in, in hunting and fish and wildlife, the more and more tracks I would see, the more and more stories I would hear about predation on the landscape. And then I started doing my own research into what was going on. I I did get involved with uh, a program now that we'll discuss a bit later. And I, I started trapping and actively trapping wolves and just seeing how powerful these, these animals are on the landscape would, was surreal, as I said, and that's a, a good word I feel to describe them. Is they're surreal. They are amazing predators. They're beautiful animals. They're they're everything that uh, you hear used to describe on both sides of the fence. No matter where you sit when it comes to hunting or managing them, they're beautiful, but they're also dangerous. They're they're magical and mystical, but they're also terrifying. It's, there's a balance there, as Michael Snyder said, that we need to find with them. And uh, that's one of the most difficult things, I, I think, when, when it comes to the discussion of wolves, is figuring out that balance, not only for them on the landscape, but for you internally on how you're going to feel about uh, where, where we need to be with them. Yeah, and it's that, it's that how you feel about uh, wolves. A lot of it, I guess a lot of how you'll feel about wolves will depend on your own interaction. So um, my own experience with wolves um, takes me to Saskatchewan, and that's kind of where it, where it starts, I guess, uh, my first interaction. Um, when I, uh, I, I used to hunt in a place called the Porcupine Hills. Uh, my mother-in-law lives up in a, a little town called Week, Saskatchewan. So sort of that north-central, uh, northeast um, part of the province in the Crown Forest. Um, I started hunting in a place called McBride Lake in, in 2000. And then in 2001, I met my wife and I started going up into that, in that part of the province. So my, my late father-in-law, I remember, um, when I first moved up there, you know, there's coyotes and there was bears and lots of white-tailed deer, lots of moose. Um, you know, there's elk, uh, and, and really, really healthy, robust game populations. And about 2000, and so I hunted 2001, 2002, uh, 2003, I remember going up and my father-in-law had commented um, that he was seeing a lot of wolves. And in the time that I'd been up there, uh, in the years, in those few years previous, I had seen one 
uh, one track for a wolf one time in a, in a November whitetail hunt. So I hadn't seen one before. And he had made the comment that, you know, man, I'm seeing a lot of wolves. And what was interesting, and that was a November, that was a November hunt. And that morning I, I drive, uh, I drive into the, into the forest. So you go up the highway and I go through this little town called Somme and I'm like seven minutes down the road and I come around a corner and there's like four black wolves in the middle of the road. And for the rest of that little hunting adventure, I saw more wolves than I saw anything else. And in the years um, on the other side of that, my father-in-law passed away in 2006. In the years on the other side of that, I, I mean, wolves were more common for me to interact with than coyotes, uh, which was interesting. So flash forward, um, my last year in Saskatchewan was 2014. Um, I moved to Prince George in 2015. So 2014 whitetail season isn't terrific. Um, but one of the things that happens is there are some catastrophic uh, losses of livestock, um, you know, uh, house pets or, or, or farm dogs, etc. So there's a there's a, a large dairy cattle operation uh, north of Weeks, and it gets decimated by by wolf predation. Um, there's you know horses are being attacked. Uh, there's chickens, and you know there's a pig farm, and there's all of these casualties. And the CO service and the, the province are pretty concerned about it. So they, they issue a, the first time ever, uh, or at least the first time in probably the last 60 years, there's a, there's a public hunt. Uh, 100 tags are issued to hunt wolves. And uh, this is in the, the cropland near Hudson Bay, uh, Saskatchewan. So you know, my, my hunting partner and I are like, well, we are seeing wolves, so let's, let's give this thing a whirl. So we get our tags and we head out and the very first morning of the very first day, we're driving along a road, a uh, big, long, uh, snow covered field. And, uh, we see a string of wolves, six or seven wolves heading towards the tree line. Um, so we get out and I, there's a couple of things I recall about it. One is just, there was this, there was a front, a frenetic amount of energy. As soon as we saw the wolf, it was like, Oh my God, I can't believe it. You know, day one and here, we're going to get a chance at him. So we're watching these wolves and they, and they see us and they start booking for the tree line. So we get out of the truck and are trying to cover some ground to find a place to shoot. And the wolves end up, you know, we're six or 700 yards apart and it's kind of windy. So the rest of the wolves were all gray and there's one big gray or pardon me, one big black wolf that I recall. I don't know if it was a big female or a big male, but it kind of lingers back. And the other ones hit the tree line and they all kind of stop facing us. So we don't really have a good shot and we're watching them. And all of a sudden this black wolf starts the howl. And then the whole pack goes in. And that's my first time ever hearing wolves howl in the wild. And I got to tell you, I mean, it, it had a, and to this day, it has had a profound impact on me. And, you know, I saw them strictly as a predator, um, you know, the day that I went out. But the, the day that that happened, they became something else. And I see the things that non-hunters and, you know, some of the anti-hunting people, I see the thing that they're compelled by because I felt it in that moment. Um, you know, once they started howling, I was spellbound, you know, my, my buddy Luke and I, we were spellbound listening to them howl. Um, you know, we, and we pursued the, the wolves for, for the rest of that trip and didn't see any more. We saw lots of evidence of their passing and we talked to other hunters that say they were seeing lots of them, but the, you know, wolves went from being not an issue in Saskatchewan to being a significant issue, particularly in, uh, you know, there's three or four management units that became a big problem in. So Flash forward, now I moved to British Columbia. Well, I mean, Steve, uh, you and I hunt a lot together. Um, there's there's virtually no time that we go out that we don't see wolf tracks. Now, I think that's a little bit unfair, though, and, and here's what I'm going to say to that. I think that wolf tracks on a road are just evidence of a road. 
I don't think it necessarily means that you have an overpopulation problem. And that's where a lot of people that are listening to this would disagree with me. Because sometimes what we see is the evidence of their passing is the evidence that there's too many, and that's not necessarily the case. Now, do I think that there are too many wolves? And this is just because the rest of my panelists are looking at me with daggers. But uh, for me personally, do I, yes, I think there's a, there is significant uh, problems with uh, wolf populations in part of this province. But do I think on the whole that the province has too many? No, I don't think so. Uh, do I think we need to manage for them? I, I believe that we have to manage for them. And that's, uh, that's where a lot of people will, uh, there's, there's hunters that I, that, you know, on some of our hunting pages, there's hunters listening to this podcast that would never pick up a gun and shoot a wolf. They'd never shoot a coyote. They wouldn't shoot a cougar. They wouldn't shoot a bear. They don't understand the, the exchange, right? Uh, for them, it makes sense. You go shoot something that you can eat and you can be nourished and that's what fuels them. But the idea of shooting predators is difficult. I would have been in that camp because when I first moved here, uh, bears were an idea, but bear hunting has become the, the number one thing that I do every year. I struggle a little bit more with coyote hunting and wolf hunting as time goes on. You know, only from a, like if there's a management issue, for me, it's not an issue. But, you know, in, you know, I, you know Michael's business, I know, was profoundly impacted. And because he was doing it for the, the folks, the First Nations, the Tackler First Nations in the area that he's, he's guiding in, but largely these discussions on wolves and wolf management keep coming back to this, the social part of it. It's always the whether it's acceptable. Where I want to go with this is these polarizing opinions about wolves. You know, the wolf is both sinner and saint. It depends on who you're asking. What do you think it is, you know, for you guys around the table, um, what do you think it is that fuels public perception? What are the things that contribute to either I hate them all because I, I, I read and see comments that, you know, the only good wolf is a dead wolf. You need to shoot them all. And you see other people that, I mean, it's, it's the complete opposite. You know, that they're sentient creatures. You know, they're, they're just like us. And there's this, there's this anthropomorphic identity that people attach to them. And they, they can't be touched. So what do you think fuels that? Mike Morris, let's start with you. Well, you know, somebody, uh, I don't remember who mentioned it, uh, talking about their first encounter with, with wolves was Walt Disney. And I think that's the, the public have that perception, White Fang. The Kayla uh, Jungle Book. Yeah, yeah. You bet, yeah. all that yeah. kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I go back to, uh, it was our government uh, back in the 2000s that brought in the wolf kill program, uh, aerial shooting program uh, back about 2015 or 2014. I can't remember for yeah. sure what year it was. The debate around the cabinet table was quite interesting. When you look at British Columbia, where we have 65% of the population living on 0.53% of the landmass, and they're the ones that have this perception of, of what wildlife is all about from this Walt Disney and from you know, all the different National Geographic magazines and whatnot. We live up here. We live in the environment, uh, the Amanika region of, of British Columbia, was probably one of the best moose hunting areas in the province uh, for, for many, many years. And uh, people from Lower Mainland come up here and they hunt and they get their moose and they go back again. We need to hear a stronger voice from the Lower Mainland hunters, uh, from, the, from the basic hunters throughout the whole province here as to exactly what hunting is all about. And I think you, with the programs that you've initiated and the 250 hunter program and, and the hunter circle and, and whatnot, that has done a lot, but we need to do a lot more. And trying to convince my, my uh, colleagues in government that uh, we needed the aerial hunt program for wolves to try and balance the, the population aspect, of it, that was a tough job. 
And there was only a couple of us in cabinet at the time that had ever hunted before and, and uh, trying to convince our colleagues that uh, this was the right direction to go was a bit of a hurdle for us. But, but we made it. And I'm glad to see that the current government has maintained that program because we had to thin them out quite a bit. I just go back to, you know, my, my trapping uh, in, in my area. It's quite a large trap line and uh, trapped it for years. Back in the 80s, uh, most of the wolf kills that I would find, uh, the moose and whatnot that had been killed by wolves, were on natural meadows and lakes. And uh, into the 90s and throughout the entire 2000s, just about every single kill was on a resource road. And yep. uh, so, and, and multiple kills. Like I would come across, sometimes in a day, I'd come across seven, uh, seven or eight. Uh, and, and that has a real impact on the overall moose population. So that, that's where we get... Um, uh, you know, the, the people that live in the most populated areas of British Columbia, Canada, the world, um, they don't see that. They don't understand that. And uh, nature is quite vicious out there. Those of us who hunt and are on, in the outdoors all the time, we see that side and we, we have that balance in our mind of where, where it is. We don't want to annihilate the wolf population completely because they do a job out there for us. But uh, we need to maintain that balance in there. And uh, with the impact on the land, with resource development uh, over the last 75 years in particular over the last 20 or 30 years it's had a real impact on it Um, man has to come up and try something else to maintain that balance because nature doesn't have the capacity to do it any longer yeah for sure in your specific area michael um how much has resource and land disturbance affected not just um i mean it affects your your ungulate population but do you see that same kind of thing manifest on the land well i got two guide areas so uh one is one that has been, um, I would say, heavily uh, impacted uh, by logging activities since um, early 80s. Um, they're now at sort of the end of, uh, I guess, their rotation in that territory. So there's very little uh, old growth left, probably the less um, desired balsam, um, and then some of the stuff that was left for, for wildlife movement corridors or calving grounds. So looking at that going out trapping, obviously the wolves are using the roads. They've learned to use it effectively and and they're learning all the time. If something is successful, they're going to do that again. The other place I have is very remote, has very little logging activity or an old logging activity, uh, much of it overgrown and then probably 60-70% of it is uh, virgin. There's no roads, nothing in there. And the weird thing is and I don't know how to explain it, is that the ungulate populations have declined no matter if there was logging or not in that part of the world. And my interpretation of that is that uh, I think most of the moose actually migrate from the high ground, which is uh, untouched to the lower bottom valleys along the rivers, uh, the Skeena and, and, and others. And that's where we find all the sheds, so they must be there during the winter. Um, and, and, the, and the other parts where, where we hunt in the fall you wouldn't find a shed. That means they're not there in the winter, and that's been uh, passed on anecdotally uh, from people that have been out there trapping in First Nations as such. So so what's happening is these moose migrate, and, and they have high densities in the river bottom, and, and that's where the wolves then migrate to, too, and then uh, have, have a huge impact. Even though that's where the logging is, so then, uh, then that's where they use the roads as well to be effective. At the end of the day, I'm very surprised on, on actually how little we know. You asked the question earlier, and what Steve described is very accurate. So you, you, you want to talk to somebody in the lower mainland, and they have an expectation or, or, or envision uh, you know, <laughs> wildlife 
They, they envision predator prey, they envision food, yet they have no connection to it. They don't know where it comes from. They don't know how it happens in the landscape. They have no idea. And even people that live here in, in town, I mean, how often have you talked to people? They're, they're, I show them pictures of Northern Lights and they go, wow, cool. I said, are you kidding me? You yeah. live here. <laughs> have you ever gone out at night? You know, and, and it's like, and, but they have an opinion about wolves. They'll tell you all about it. That's where I struggle with this is it's the one thing that people lay at, at your feet all the time. If there's a debate about any kind of shift in ungulate population, the first place that we go is wolves. And I, I mean, that's not entirely, there, there's a discussion about habitat number two is wolves, but the habit, the habitat is one of the things that improves the efficacy of wolves. And on some level, I mean, we need, at some point, we're going to have to cross a divide, uh, you know, provincially in our wildlife management plan where we're going to have to address habitat. Before we, it, once we address habitat, hopefully in doing that, that correction in habitat and, and what that landscape looks like will have it at some, in some way, shape or form will eventually start to shift the focus. But when we start losing, you know, when we start losing wildlife, I, and, I, and I'm not excusing wolves from their role in this. The wolves are, uh, you know, there's 100% there's predation. The reality is the wolf is just being the wolf. There's always been predation. It, it, it wouldn't matter. I, I would suggest it wouldn't matter at what point you look in it. There's going to be a level of mortality, a significant level of mortality in an area where moose are the primary ungulate and where wolves are the significant, uh, are, are one of the significant apex predators, that their mortality is going to be related to wolves. I don't think that's any different. The difference is, is when you get caribou populations that are repressed, a moose population that gets repressed or, or, or damaged to the point where it can't sustain normal predation levels. That's where the problem is. And then we get judged. The hunting community gets judged and indicted. And this is the unfair part is there's only so much work that the crown was able to do, right? They gets pushed back publicly from aerial gunning, which means that at some point you have to offload that responsibility. Somebody's got to pick it up. If Michael, if you're not out trapping for them, it probably doesn't disappear. And if there's people that are listening to this podcast, don't get up and they don't strap on a pair of snowshoes or jump in a snowmobile and go out and make some, and some of them do. I'm not talking about pot shotting one wolf here. I'm talking, there's some people that I know that make a concerted effort because they have to in certain geographic areas where they go and they, they make a very heavy-handed effort to manage wolves. And it's not like they're in it just because they want to kill wolves. It's not, about, it's not about a glory kill. It's not about anything like that. It's specifically about they recognize that in a focused area that they can have an impact as a management tool. The same thing happens when we have a, you know, populations of ungulates that they, something's got to lift the pressure off. And it's unfortunate something needs to be a consequence. So here's what I want to ask you. Dustin, I'll start with you. There is a primary prey reduction. So, you know, it's where we have a management model that basically says, okay, we want to save caribou. I'm right on this so far. Tell me when I'm wrong, Michael. Just, just put your hand up. Steve, just jump in if I get this wrong. We want caribou populations to recover. The sacrificial lamb, not, not a lamb specifically, but the, the sacrificial moose is the one that they put in some. There are management units around here where the plan is to manage the moose to zero. You either put in, leave wolves to put enough predation impact on it so that the, 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 the moose either displace or go away because that allows the caribou population to recover in their belief that is if, they get, if you get the moose down to a certain level, the wolves will just lose interest and they'll go to another buffet. Am I right? How do you feel about sacrificing one species for another? 
that's uh that's a really tough question is how do you uh how do you put more value on one thing over the other how do you say this is more important than that i don't know if this is probably one of those things i think that almost anybody could probably talk themselves in a circle if if you really kind of just just verbally snowballed it out i feel like uh i feel like it it'd be really tough to come to a conclusion given that you're looking at at really three different animals as well as the landscape as a whole to say we want we want caribou so we have to get rid of moose and we have to make the wolves go somewhere else yeah uh, that seems like a that seems like a really complex situation just to start with uh given that we uh you know, I guess in a lot of areas we're we're doing good at uh, lowering moose levels, so it doesn't seem like it'd be impossible. Yeah. Um, but uh, but how do you how do you say that that this is more important than that? Because we don't know accurately. I don't think what what should be there, or or I don't know if we can go back far enough and say what it should look like. Yeah. So we kind of have to create in our minds what what we want it to look like. But I'm not sure if we know. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I, I guess, I guess to answer your question, yes, I have, uh, I guess I have an, an issue with that to, to kind of put, uh, put one above the other, but, um, you know, this is kind of, uh, you know, two of your buddies hanging off of a cliff and you only have time to grab one sort of thing, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like yeah. who do you, who do you pick and can you, can you stand there long enough and think about it? Yeah, you know? absolutely. <laughs> Michael, do you want to jump in on that? Oh, I'd love to. Oh, I, I, I knew I knew you wanted to. I'll let the two mics and Steve take this one for a bit. So the, okay. the, this to me is unbelievable. So one of the biggest problems I have is with people telling you things, and they're, they're that's how it is, and and that's um, what what works or whatever. And th- and then, like I said, I spent two hundred and fifty one year, two hundred seventy days out of a year in the bush, and what I see is different than what I've been told. And then I go, okay, now I struggle because I got places I can show you where moose and caribou have gone down uh, simultaneously. Um, Grizzly bears have gone up, wolves have gone up, and then eventually they'll move off because they got to eat on something and grizzly bears are going to get less, but still they're going to feed on something, but the wolves keep wandering along. And I can tell you that they won't leave until they ate the last caribou. They're, they're not going to wander away because the moose is gone. They're going to go and eat whatever is there. I mean, Mike Morris said earlier, you know, in on his trap line, which is, that that's the thing. you got trappers, guides, First Nations, resident hunters that keep going back to the same places. They can tell you a story about these places that they know near and dear. Every little detail, you know, Mike said the wolves were, were targeting uh, beaver because they learned to uh, be successful it's it's very nutritious well why not they're not gonna just lay there and die or or wander off they, they go long ways anyway so if you want to really do something you know uh, there was a wolf study done here just uh, south of uh, Prince George and I think the biologists were telling us that a couple of wolves went all the way from Prince George to Smithers right and yeah. so if you want to uh, um, move and and I'm not sure if they came back or not, but the story is... No, they haven't. They've started another pack, I think, now, so yeah. But the point is their range, their radius is humongous. So if you actually want to reduce the number of wolves, you would have to reduce the number of moose provincially, I guess, or beyond. So that the, 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 I always come back to the same point. What's the end goal? What do we want at the end of the day? What do you want to see? And by you, I mean British Columbia. What... what does British Columbia envision? <laughs> that's that's the prickly part, though. There well, you go. Well, but we got to get there because right now we're just we're just a ship on the ocean. 
We don't know where we're going. We're just going along and whoever is just holding the steering wheel for the moment is, is giving direction. Is that how we're going to continue? In the meanwhile, we're going to lose salmon and steelhead and moose and caribou and deer and what I think I think if you stay tuned to the second episode that's coming up uh, after this one, you'll find that we've already lost salmon and steelhead. But that's a discussion <laughs> for another day. Steve, where do you sit on this one, my friend? Primary prey reduction. It, it, it's been said beautifully by uh, guys around the table. What makes one animal more special or more beautiful or have any other right to the landscape than another. Michael Michael said it. They will travel. You take one food source away, they will get up and move. They're not just going to magically die off or ride on a cloud the way some people like to, to make this they, uh, they're going to do. You're not, they're not going to turn vegan. They're going to continue to do what wolves do. And we can't be mad at that. We just need to, to find a happy medium where these, these animals have an equal place on the landscape and how that looks. Well, I wish we knew. Go ahead, Mr. Morris. A misguided strategy in my view. And Michael summed it up pretty good there. You know, if you run out of moose, they're going to go after the caribou or anything else that's around there. You know, we, we have constructed well over 700,000 kilometers of resource roads in the province. Um, that, that's a big problem. And that's not counting the tens of thousands of kilometers of pipeline right-of-ways, uh, hydro right-of-ways, uh, that all these animals take advantage of. The other aspect of this is the fact that we've got five predator, five main predators in BC, starting with the grizzly bear, the black bear, the wolf, the coyote, the wolverine, and all of those have an impact on the ungulate population here in British Columbia. Wolves are by, by far one of the most prolific killers that we have throughout the year. Uh, the bears do a toll in the springtime, but I've watched a, a full-grown wolf try to bring down a bull moose all by itself in November. And uh, it gave that moose a pretty good run for its money. And, the, you know, the moose eventually got away quite wounded. But, uh, you know, a single wolf is devastating. A pack is, uh, you know, far more effective at, at killing off all these ungulates here. But whoever came up with this, uh, th this strategy of, you know, getting rid of the moose so that the caribou can survive uh, must have been some city guy sitting in Victoria or wherever they might be from that have never experienced what real life is like out in the, uh, out in the back country. I, I just have a question here and, and, and maybe this is uh, this is an odd one, but uh, is it as a, as kind of the wolf outsider here, is it a fair statement to say maybe wolves aren't overpopulated, but our ungulates are just underpopulated? I, I think that's, is that, I think that's probably a bigger issue. I mean, because, because again, too, like, like, so, so we have changed the landscape massively, um, these resource roads and, and logging activity, mining activity, the pipelines, that sort of stuff. Um, not only does that, uh, does that really benefit the wolves, but in the same breath too, we're impacting the food source, uh, the migration patterns, all that stuff, whether it's caribou, moose, any of that stuff, again, too, uh, you know, the wolves are the competitor for us really. So, are they kind of being being uh, you know picked on for lack of a better term just because uh, because our, our ungulate populations are crazy low so they kind of get the bad rap because it's easier I guess to pick on the wolves than it is to say we have an entire habitat issue in this province. We we have an imbalance issue in this province, and you're right, uh, Dustin. Um, the wolf population I've noticed on my trap line has dropped significantly in the last five or six years. I don't see near the number of tracks and animals that that I've seen in the past. Um, but that doesn't, you know, they have followed, uh, they've gone into the caribou areas. They've gone into the area where there's, there's food available for them because there's nothing left, uh, you know, in the area that I trap. And I've got a big uh, trap line. 
And uh, so that's where they'll go. And then their numbers will drop down, just like all the wild critters that we have out there. If there's not enough food around, they won't reproduce. So we have significant land disturbance. We have, uh, not just in roads, but just in in terms of large blocks, we have uh, a lot of pressure. And we're talking 20 years of steady decline in, uh, in ungulates. I noticed in, in Mike's area, myself, uh, Steve uh, my, and myself were doing a lot of lynx hunting up there this winter, Mark Newdorf. And uh, what we didn't actually see a lot of was evidence of wolves. And if you'd gone back two years ago, it was fairly significant. There was some wolf activity there, but nothing like I'm used to seeing before. The same couple of smaller packs that uh, we've seen in the past, but not like it was before. I also noticed the same thing on the Olson, on the 800, in some of those areas uh, around Prince George where I've, I've seen a decrease. Now, to, to color this though, there has been, from the Salmon River moving north, there has been uh, wolf mitigation going on, uh, and a fairly significant one. So when we look at objectives, in the 2014 uh, wolf management plan that the Crown put forward, one of the things that is established in there is a actual wolf density. And it's actually, to Michael's point, it's the first actual tactile, I can look at it, number I've ever seen quantified on what a recovery number would be or what an objective would be. Wolf, and when they look at wolves, they're looking at the amount of wolves in terms of density. It's a density number is the objective. So in that Williston Basin, the Moberly area, they're looking to take those numbers down to about three wolves per thousand kilometers squared. Now, the reason for that, though, is you look at uh, wolf's ability to recover. Where we have had um, exhaustive mitigation programs in British Columbia, um, Alberta, Saskatchewan, where they've done significant culling, within four to five years, those wolf numbers will actually rebound. What that does, though, is it relieves some of the the predation pressure on ungulate populations and allows them to go through two or three years uh, where they can maximize calf recruitment and they could get a chance to rebound and hopefully get ahead of the curve. Wolves have a fairly high success rate in terms of pup, more, uh, pup, pup natality and, and getting uh, pups into adulthood. So that's one of the things that happens. And I think, I think as much as people hate the consequence of the wolf had to die to get there, the reality is that they're prolific breeders, just like coyotes are. They're prolific beater, uh, breeders and they recover quickly. But they're also voracious consumers. Um, because they hunt as packs, right? Small ones or large ones, they they hunt as packs. Hey folks, Don Willamont here from Spruce City Wildlife Association. If you are looking to be part of an organization that is committed to conservation initiatives for fish, wildlife, and habitat in Prince George and across Northern British Columbia, we have the club for you. Spruce City Wildlife has been around for over 50 years in Prince George, promoting all of those things, the outdoor traditions that we love, whether it's hunting, fishing, our fishery program, community cleanups, education, stream keepers programs, etc. We have been committed to all of the things that we love in the outdoors. So if you're looking to donate or get a family membership, there's a couple of places you can go, or if you just want to follow along with some of our upcoming activities and the things that the club is doing and it's about, we meet this the third Tuesday of every month at, on River Road at the Hatchery, and we'd love to have you here. So you can find information on our Facebook page or find us at scwa.bc.ca online. All right, thanks very much for your support. Now back to our podcast in the company of wolves on the Cutbanks Conversations. We're back, Stephen. We're going to start this next segment real quick here. Uh, a quick over to you. Let's talk a little bit uh, about livestock uh, impact in British Columbia and wolves. Well, the, the, the BC cattlemen put in a, 
a program a few years ago for livestock protection. And it's meant to basically raise awareness of predation to their their, their members, uh, basically uh, sheep producers, beef and, and uh, dairy cattle producers are, are under this program. It's, it's also meant to reduce the economic impact of predation on the, the owners, get data and, and help basically teach effective management of uh, the resource to everybody. And there, there's a bunch of verifiers that will go out if there is a suspected predation on the landscape for a producer. And it, it works out that since January 1st, 2016 is when the program started. There's been 845 head of cattle and 63 sheep either killed, injured, or harassed by wolves to the point where we've had to intervene. Sounds like a strange number. Even though a whole herd of cows may have been harassed, it's only recorded as one to not not overinflate the numbers. So, for example, if a rancher has 500 cattle that are harassed, uh, actively chased or stalked, it only counts as one harassment. And realistically, we we don't ever hear of a rancher having just one, one cow or one sheep. So if you do the math on just how many cows or sheep have been harassed in the last four years of the program, it's staggering. And I, I'm not sure on the total economic impact numbers-wise, but if you were to, to dig a little bit deeper, it, it would be unbelievable amounts. And that's just to the animals itself. Who knows? Uh, how difficult it would be to be a rancher going out and and seeing your your livelihood shredded because uh, as we've talked about uh, wolves do not it, it's it's not a pretty pretty thing when they take down an animal so uh it's it's been a very amazing uh experience for me to be involved with this and the, the learning curve just seeing how efficient i believe what mike morris said uh, how efficient these animals are at killing the, their prey. The other thing that uh, I think people forget on that program, and uh, I got a chance to witness this with Steve a couple of times, and so for some of you that are listening, perhaps you've uh, been around the same thing. There is a burden of proof uh, to confirm that you've had a predation incident. It's not as simple as calling up and saying, yeah, I got wolves, come and kill them. Uh, you have to prove predation, and it's not as simple as even even a dead animal isn't necessarily evidence of anything. It could have there. You have to establish quite a bit of stuff. Do you want to speak to that a little bit, Steve? That that's correct. We we have to go out as, as quick as possible. We can get a phone call and say suspected predation, and as, as Don said, if, if there's no proof, we can't help. Uh, it involves a lot of dirty work, so to speak, hands-on skinning dealing with the rancher, looking at, it's almost like CSI. You take pictures of the crime scene, you look at the blood spatter, and you, you see if this animal was attacked when, and, and there's evidence of a, a wolf bite before it died. There'll be bruising left behind, and bruising patterns, and you have to measure punctures, and take pictures, and it, it's quite the in-depth process. And I've done a couple verifications where I couldn't prove that it was a wolf. I knew it was a wolf. Uh, the evidence was almost all there, but 
it wasn't quite enough to say I can conclusively say that. So the rancher is out money and time and effort for what is in, in all likelihood a wolf doing as wolves do. However, there's there's not that burden of evidence, as Don said. It's a long, drawn-out process that goes into it being a verifier. And it, it's not as simple as just showing up and saying, I want to trap or take out these wolves. And it, it, like, like I said, the, the number was uh, 845 head of cattle. Those are ones we can prove. You could probably conservatively say double, if not triple, on the cases where we couldn't prove it. So there's there, there's quite a bit more behind the scenes than just showing up and trying to uh, mitigate some wolves. In the U.S., one of the things that they struggle with the most, particularly in the uh, in the Northwest uh, United States and parts of the Midwest, where you have large cattle operations, it's not just a fatality from wolves. It's uh, cattle trying to survive in the midst of wolves with uh, predation pressure. So a couple of things that, that that go into that. And I think, and I'm not sure, Michael, you might be able to speak to this. I, I can't. But when you have a, a, a sustained amount of predation pressure in a livestock environment for sheep or for cattle specifically, you can have an impact on birth weights for calves. You can have a birth, uh, an impact on the live weight for cows because they're, they're uh, under distress. It can affect uh, their lactation processes, their birthing cycles. They can cre- uh, increase the amount of stillbirths um, or stillborn calves, etc. And I've heard the same thing applied to caribou and moose, that in high levels of predation, uh, you can affect uh, ungulates' ability to you know, calf normally, um, or even just the amount of survivability. And it's got nothing to do with whether the wolf kills them. It's just the amount of pressure that they put under them, which changes some of their grazing behavior and just some of their behavior in general. Correct? Well, just one of the points I want to make again is that I'm not a scientist. I have zero um, uh, knowledge or training in it. But uh, what I do have is what I see on the ground. And what I've noticed there is um, when you start calling moose in the fall, like was mentioned earlier, I think Mike Morris was talking about it, I can't remember. You, you start get surrounded by wolves and uh, you do that over and over and over and <laughs> over again. And then finally you get a moose to answer and then <clears throat> he didn't come out. Next morning you go there and, and the wolves are howling and they killed him. That was the only one that answered. <laughs> so what happens then is the, the rutting season when they should be communicating through scent and, and sound and find each other and uh, when the cow is ready to be bred the bull should be breeding her what's actually happening on the ground is that the wolves are playing a role by these cows not getting pregnant and so what we ended up seeing towards um, the end of the i would say the peak of uh, the the moose population was the older bulls were gone there was no calves you would see five six seven cows uh, two spike fork bulls and no calves and the size of the moose was maybe half the body weight of what it was 10 years before. When when we would shoot a moose, a big bull, mature bull moose, uh, we would fill, you know, four of these Rubbermaid totes uh, with uh, deboned meat. And right now I do the same thing with, uh, you know, equal inch-wise bull or age-wise bull if I find one, and I'm filling half that. I guarantee you the same thing happens on the cattle. I guarantee you it happens everywhere. The stress these animals go through while they get chased around. Um, they're not getting bred. They're, they lose their weight. And, and don't forget, an animal health 
is a very important uh, factor in rebirth and in, in reproduction. If they're not healthy, if they don't have fat, they don't reproduce. Okay, so we have um, we have this predator stew. We have uh, we have wolves. Uh, we have livestock. We have ungulates. We have grizzly bears. We have cougars. We have a whole a whole host of things, black bears included, that are all in this mix. Now, the one animal in this mix that ends up wearing um, most of the responsibility ends up being the wolf specifically. Out of everything that's in that mix, there is some discussion periodically about the impact of either grizzly bears or black bears on predation. Uh, mathematically, it's a fairly low percentage. Uh, cougars, depending on where you're at in the province, can have certainly in the world of livestock, particularly in sheep, they can have a significant impact. But it's largely wolves that it's the cross that they have to bear because as, as the predation part of it is concerned, these impacts on uh, animal weights, these impacts on calving, these uh, impacts on uh, uh, great, like in, in terms of grazing pressure, these are, the, these are the things that I guess get put in front or get attached to wolves. My question is, if under, understanding that the, the, wolf, the, the wolf plays a role in all of this and understanding that we have, to, we have to manage for them, which means killing them, when you remove that particular component, when we talk about hunting a wolf because it's a wolf, and I'm not talking about because it's got anything to do with livestock. I'm talking about hunting a wolf, an animal that you're unlike a black bear, you're not going to eat it. So just hunting a wolf for the sake of hunting a wolf, Okay. You know, I, w- I want to do, to do that in my life. I don't want to shoot hundreds of them, but I've reconciled myself like I did with grizzly bears that I wanted to shoot one in my life. What I'm wondering, because this is, this is the part that I think the anti-hunting world, the people that don't hunt, this is the part of wolf hunting, I think, that they, that they struggle with. Because if you put all of the evidence that we've just laid out in terms of the reasons that we have to manage for them, I mean, they might not like it, but it's easy to accept, well, I've got a livestock problem. I've got an issue with, you know, caribou. I've got an issue with elk or mule deer or, or moose. They're impacting, you know, those populations. That's an easy case to make. But what do you tell the uninitiated? Let's say, forget they're an anti-hunter. What would you tell somebody that's not a hunter at all, has no specific opinions for or against? And they said, what were you going to hunt today? And you said, and you said, I'm going to go out and I'm going to be shooting a wolf today. And they're going to go, oh, is it part of a management program? No. And oh, is it a livestock related? No. Why are you going out to shoot it? Now, some people will struggle with that explanation. And I know that for me, uh, I can reconcile that to myself, but I'm curious how you guys would answer it. Well, I'll take a stab at it here first. Um, I would do it purely from a game management perspective. My trap line, I'm aware of the ungulates I have around. I have, I'm aware of everything that's out there, uh, right down to the mice and all the other little critters that we have. So w- when I've gone after wolves over the years, um, it's purely from a management perspective. And initially it probably wasn't. Initially it was probably, you know, I, w- I want to trap a wolf and, and, and skin it and, and sell the pelt. But I quickly learned that uh, the wolf pelts themselves, uh, there's a very short window where they're prime where they'll bring a dollar. Oftentimes I've had, you know, I'd, I'd pick up four or five black wolves is one particular situation. I set the, the snares and I showed up and I had about six of them. And I skinned them all very carefully. You skin them for taxidermy purposes and they sat on the auction block for over five years before I finally sold it. Why is that? Uh, the, the pelts aren't, you know, initially uh, they, they might look okay, 
but they're not really prime. And, and you know, from my experience uh, over the years, uh, a wolf pelt is probably prime in December and January. And then after that, uh, every time they, you know, they'll lay down and they'll get up and the guard hairs will start pulling out. Right. And, they get a little bit motley after a while. So most of the wolves that we've trapped um, uh, are purely for management purposes only. Uh, the Guide Outfitter Association has provided the BC trappers with uh, with uh, an enhancement program where we'll go out and, and trap wolves to try and lessen their populations. We have 35, well, we used to have about 3,500 registered trap lines in the province. I think we're down with amalgamations and whatnot, maybe to about 2,500 registered trap lines. But it's expensive. The equipment used for trapping wolves is very expensive, and there's no monetary, there's no payback on that. Uh, the wolf pelt is not used for garments. It's very heavy. Uh, you get a nice prime wolf, and, and you make a coat out of it, and there might be one or two days a year in cold weather where you'll wear it. But uh, So there's, there's not a real market for that. Uh, there's been a market for taxidermy wolves uh, in, in some areas or just hanging a pelt on the wall for, for decoration, I suppose. But other than that, it's purely a wildlife management program. And with the amount of, of resource uh, development that we've had in the province over the last 75 to 100 years, uh, it's had a significant impact on it uh, with our wildlife populations, our cattle populations. We have had, man has to step in and help manage that wildlife population to get the balance right at the end of the day. We have to enhance our habitat we have to do a number of things to bring that balance back. And right now, wolves are one of the key ingredients to saving our caribou and probably reducing the, the loss of the other ungulate populations we have with mule deer and moose in the population as well. Michael, if you had to, so that, that deals with it as a specifically a management tool. If you said, I'm going out to shoot a wolf today and it's got nothing to do with a management program, because that does happen. And uh, that's part of the landscape. And that's part of the bad press that we have to deal with because that's the part that faces the non-hunting public. I, th- I think that's the harder part to explain. What would you say to that? It's a very tough one because um, emotions come into place. And huh, as hunters, we have them too. We're, we're not non-human. And, and when you kill an animal, you're taking a life. It doesn't matter if you're running it over with a vehicle by accident or if you're doing it on purpose with a firearm or a trap. At the end of the day, you're taking a creature's uh, life. And in my mind, first of all, you go through stages throughout your lifetime uh, as a hunter or trapper or angler, why you go out and catch fish, you know, or why you go out and hunt. It may be, um, you know, uh, for food, for fur, for catch and release, for fishing, or w- whatever those stages are. It, I, I'm at a stage right now where I know for a fact that Number one, it's legal uh, within the season to take uh, a wolf if I have an opportunity. Number two is it's it uh, has very little impact on on like it, they're, they're not in danger. There's lots, and I want to go back to uh, a Dustin's um, comment or question earlier. You know, maybe we we have you know wolf population that's fine and the younglets are low. I disagree. The, it may be in some places. In this province, is huge. Don't forget, it's massive. In in many places, I think we have more wolves than we've had at least in the last I can only recall 33 years because that's my time on this uh, in, in, in this area to take out a wolf it's not for food it I, I do like the fur I, I, I use it when I have clients they don't look at the quality of the guard hair you know they if, <laughs> if it, no you know they're not making anything out of it it's uh, it's it's a huge uh, 
thing to have. Uh, there's permits for it, and legally they can export and import into the country. So, um, you know, we might sell them, and at the end of the day, it's it's legal to take, and it, it's uh, sustainable to, to do so. If At the end of the day, though, and we need to come back to this, that the, um, the disconnect from the people that are wanting to have a voice in this debate, but the disconnect to what's actually happening on the ground is the issue. We need to figure out what we want happening, what are the goals and the objectives, give our managers and biologists the tool they need to to manage for these objectives and goals and back them and say, okay, we have a demand. First Nations have a right to, to, to hunt for sustenance and ceremonial purposes. Resident hunters want to go out. There's a demand there. And guide outfitters, obviously we have them. They're there or, or get rid of them, right? So if, if that industry is not um, acceptable anymore, you know, then retire it. Call a spade a spade. If you want them, if you want that tourist dollar to come, then manage for it. Say, okay, here's the demand. These, this is how much ungulates we need on the ground and the predators are a competitor to it. Manage them in balance. The, the, the point is the balance point and nobody gets there. It's always, you know, get rid of them all, shoot them all, you know, whack them, poison, whatever. No, that's not right either. And it's also not right just to say, just, you know, don't shoot any of them. There, there, there is a middle ground here. We need to find that place. And then when we all sign on to that, I know it's a pipe dream, but at the end of the day, the politicians have to make a decision and say, you know what, this is the right thing to do. There's caribou, they're in trouble. We got to go and do, we got to flip the switch, right? And they do it in Alaska. I mean, they're all gunning brown bears for crying out loud because there's no calf recruitment and, and they have a, a legislative mandate to, to manage for these species to reach certain population densities, calf recruitment, and they got to flip the switch and they go out and they remove the predator. That's the problem. But, it, but in that, it doesn't get them away from social pressure. I mean, in, in Alaska is unique because, you know, Alaska kind of marches to the beat of their own drum. I, I agree with you. I think they have a terrific wildlife model and they're committed to it. They don't bow very easily to social pressure. We don't have that luxury in British Columbia. I think if I look, we have just over 100,000 people applied for uh, hunting licenses in 2019. And if you take a look at that, that's 100,000 people versus, what's our population, About Mike? About 5 million. About 5 million. So we are not representative of the majority. And what I, the reason I ask that question is the, 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 the naysayers, the people that object are the people that, and it's not the anti-hunting movement that I'm specifically laboring over in this. It's the people that don't have a specific opinion, the people that go through their lives in whether in their, they could be in a rural setting, they could be in Prince George, they can be in Vancouver, I don't care where they're from, but they don't have an opinion on it, but they're easily swayed by what they see. The other thing that we can't lose sight of is the fact that this is a renewable resource. You know, and, and it's, a, it's a natural resource in British Columbia and, and all the countries or all the parts of the world that have wildlife. Um, it's a renewable resource that we can um, harvest and it renews itself every single year. And there's a monetary value for that as well. So there's an argument that, that, that'll say, well, we should leave wolves alone completely and let wolves be wolves and let elk be elk and let whatever happens going to happen. And let's not get heavy handed with our management. And let's just let animals do whatever they're going to do. There is a whole sphere of people that believe in something called compassionate uh, conservation, which is like, just let animals be animals and let it all just unfold however it's supposed to unfold. Let me throw something in there. Yep. But when we clear cut uh, 200,000 hectares a year, when we put in 700,000 hectares of roadway, 
Um, man has had a significant part to play in wildlife habitat in this province. And, and man also has to have a significant part to play in reestablishing that balance again. I think that's a good point because because uh, exactly that, 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 you know, how often do we all hear, well, uh, nature will take care of itself. Nature can't take care of itself because we have impacted nature quite a bit, whether it is uh, forestry or the roads or mining or just kind of polluting the waterways as as we do even our uh, you know even something like storm drains are directing water to yep. areas where water wasn't going before and that sort of thing right so you know you can't say okay well we're gonna take away this entire forest and then let nature take care of itself <laughs> you know um one of the things that somebody said was uh, we were talking about the the perspective of people from the, and i want to be clear the people on the lower mainland there's lots of hunters in the lower mainland i'm friends with some of them uh, they're on our pages. It's not everybody in the lower mainland that doesn't hunt. But one of the things that we talk about, uh, and I've heard it mentioned a couple of times, is people's interaction with a resource. Sometimes um, it will influence their perception. Um, it'll also influence their empathy. Because if you, how much are we spending, Mike, because, how much will we be spending on like the Portman Bridge or some of these bridge upgrades in the lower mainland right now? Billions. Okay, so we're going to be spending, okay, so... There's, there's not billions of us um, up in northern BC. There's like 365,000 of us. But if you told me that we're spending billions of dollars to put people, so, you know, to, to, to modify a bridge so you can go faster to and from work and wherever the hell it is that you live, I would tell you that I think that's a terrible allocation of funds, but I'm not connected to that. I would suggest, though, part of the reason I don't like living in a big urban center is because I can't stand traffic. And I can tell you that if I magically found myself living in the Lower Mainland, I would instantaneously connect with the fact that if I had to work on the other side of one of those bridges, that would become my reality, right? And if I lived there long enough and I wasn't out necessarily interacting with the resources and the reality, I might still have an opinion, though, on wolves, right? I might have an opinion on how you manage wildlife. But... I would have a bigger opinion on what's going on with that. Similarly, though, as a northerner, there are things that they, that there are realities in the lower mainland that I don't, I'm not particularly connected to. And if somebody was, you know, talking to me about some of the issues that are relevant in their worldview, I might not be connected to them. And I might make harsh judgments. I might be dismissive. I could be extremely dispassionate about something. I might even be extremely negative, like I am with the, the, the bridge expense but it doesn't affect my life. And it's funny because we sometimes forget that we're equally as judgmental about people that judge us about the realities because we're, you, know, you don't get it. We're, you know, we live with the wolves and we live with the moose and salmon is our deal. Like we're right in front of this thing. We're, we're in the front, you know, we're in the front lines. And they're like, yeah, but you don't get our reality like down here right now. Part of what, what shapes people's perceptions of wolves uh, comes from a lot of things. So, Steve, you wanna, I want you to jump in here on this. Uh, Takaya, the lone sea wolf on Vancouver Island. Now, to be fair, I mean, it's an interesting story. You have, a, you have a male wolf, isolated, spends years by itself, crosses an island uh, somewhere near the Victoria area, I imagine, and uh, re re relocates itself, I believe, uh, not that long ago, and is shot by a resident hunter. And the wretched villainy begins. Steve, do you want to pick up our tale from there? That's pretty much it. This wolf was being a wolf. It wandered into a residential area. Conservation officers did a beautiful job, tranquilized it, and relocated it up around 
I, I believe it was uh, Lake Cowichan or Shawnigan Lake or somewhere in that area, quite a ways away from its, its territory. And uh, a resident hunter story goes that I was told that the resident hunter shot it legally. And for, for some reason, it was reported to this, this lady that had developed a connection with it. And it, it's blown up all over social media. And uh, it's, it's about that, not, not so much a disconnect, because she and all these uh, other people that named it have their connection to the landscape in a very different way than somebody who hunts or traps has a, a connection. So they're allowed to, to, to love the wolf in their, their way, just as we are allowed to love and appreciate it in our way. We've got different, quite different views of how things should be managed. And this, this, uh, boils down to, uh, the, the disnification, for lack of a better term, of, of wolves and, uh, various other predators on the landscape. And it's, it's going to be an interesting one to, to watch roll out. It's an unfortunate situation for both the hunting community and uh, the ones that uh, don't agree with how wildlife should be managed because unfortunately we're going to be at each other's throats again. And uh, there's, there's going to be lots of name calling back and forth, unfortunately. And uh, it's, it's just that, that disconnect that we keep going back to. Uh, and the, the, it's crappy for the guy that, I mean, the guy that shot the wolf didn't do anything illegal. To, to everyone's point, it's a legal hunt. But here's here's the headline from The Guardian. Uh, Canada mourns Takaya, the lone sea wolf whose spirit captured the world. This doesn't say the individual, uh, you know, amateur biologist or she's a biologist. It doesn't say, it says Canada. Now, The Guardian has a fairly specific agenda in terms of their writing. But nevertheless, the entire nation, apparently, all of us are apparently mourning the loss. And there is a lot of emotional language in these articles. But it's, this is the stuff that captivates the, heart and the, the hearts and the minds. It's, uh, you know, it's sad when you have an animal that people get attached to. It's one of the reasons um, in biology that you know, there's strongly, field biologists are strongly encouraged not to name animals, and they're supposed to have just numeric values. In the U.S., uh, there's, you know, a couple of wolves that uh, were quite famous. Uh, Wolf 832F uh, from Greater Yellowstone or number six gets killed outside of a park boundary, much like this, and it causes an uproar. Grizzly bear gets killed outside of one of the national parks, and it, and it you know, causes an uproar. Yeah, let's just contrast this for a second. Lone sea wolf is killed in Canada Morns versus caribou recovery as, you know, uh, provincial government, you know, aerial guns, 132 wolves but the caribou recovered. So if one of those is a headline, right? You know, if the caribou recovery becomes very secondary, uh, all the people will hear from that is you killed 130 wolves or whatever the number is to get there. And I don't know what the number is. I'm probably being hyperbolic, but one wolf dies and the whole world will moan. Um, a number of wolves will die and caribou will, and have in fact started to recover. It's removed some of the, the, the predation pressure in some of those areas. But no one's talking about the fact that it's a, there's a happy side to that. They're talking about the, the mortality, the cost in wolf lives to get there. One life being sacrificed for the expense of another. And, and that's the soundbite, though, that we're going to have to trade in. And that's the thing that faces the public. And that's the thing that does damage to the, to the hunting world because we get painted with the same brush. Um, and we're people that would uh, say, hey, listen, we're trying to get the, re the recovery of the, the caribou and we want the moose to recover in that region. 
Um, it's an unfortunate consequence. The wolves, but the wolves have to, we have to get the number down. Now we can all understand that academically, but much to my question earlier, to shoot the one wolf or to shoot a hundred wolves, the consequence is still the same. We have a, there's a justification that we're being asked to make about how we can do that. Um, because for other people, they seem to think that there's something inhumane in that process. Because the idea of wild, managing wildlife, wolves included, isn't just to manage one population because it's not just about trying to recover the wolves. Um, when we're talking about habitat rehabilitation, we're also trying to talk about martens and fishers and songbirds, you know, raptors, uh, you know, wolverines, uh, rabbits, uh, long-tailed weasels. We're, trying to, we're talking about managing for all of those values. Now, the charismatic megafauna um, and, the, and, the, and the big predators are the ones that get all the attention. And, and this is the sad part of this, because one of the things I would say to somebody that has a problem with us killing wolves is, okay, when's the last time that Patagonia or Lush uh, had a big thing for the recovery of moose that have been publicly acknowledged for the last seven years have been in the media that they've been declining steadily. And we've got a 70% reduction in a moose population in region seven. And I have yet to see a parade. I haven't seen any celebrities like writing a song or doing a video. Um, but now we're talking about killing wolves so that we can help some of those recover because there's a, there's a, a balance that we have wrong, but that's the problem. Like that's the thing that we focus on. And that's one of the issues that I have. Um, anybody else want to comment or did I? I, I, uh, I, th I completely agree. Yeah. Cause um, you know, I, I would say that it's fair to say that uh, there's quite a few caribou populations that are, you know, that we might as well say are gone, uh, that there's so few caribou left that you probably can't recover those if you do everything possible. But why is there not the same outcry? Um, you know, you, you'd said it, there's uh there's been, uh, you know, there's been lots of counts on wolves. We know the wolf population throughout the provinces is uh, is okay. Um, again, too, here we have the example that one wolf in a population in the province that is doing fine or is doing well or is potentially has a surplus, yet we have uh, certain areas where the caribou population is uh, two deep breaths away from extinction. And it's that word, um, extinction. Um, I think that's the difference. So when we're looking at this, when we're looking at this whole puzzle and this whole thing that's playing out in front of us, here's the thing. Earlier we had talked about, you know, primary prey reduction and the, the discussion about, you know, uh, there's a decision of we're going to sacrifice moose in order to save caribou. Um, and here we're talking about, you know, managing wolves to save caribou and moose. No matter how we play this out, you know, something, there's going to be a casualty here. You're either going to let the caribou go to extinction, you're going to let the, uh, the moose continue to decline, um, or you're going to, you're going to have to get heavy handed with wolves. And, and, we, we keep using the word balance. That's the thing that we're swimming towards. We're trying to find this balance between having a representation of wolves on the landscape and moose and caribou and deer and all these other animals. But here's the thing. When we talk about wolves and caribou, that specific interaction, wolves aren't on the verge of extinction. Caribou are largely throughout the province. And I think that's the only difference in this. I'm, I, I understand that it's a, it's a it's a bit of a contradiction because, you know, earlier we're, we're castigating a, a management model that says get rid of moose so that you can save caribou. But here we're saying, okay, we're going to toss out or we're going we're gonna to allow a consequence on a wolf population to save caribou. The difference is one of those populations is on the verge of not being here anymore and one of those isn't. 
So that level of mitigation, I think you you have to accept a, a certain level of casualty, um, and it, it shouldn't be in perpetuity either. We're not saying you continue to go on these aggressive culling campaigns for forever, but just until um, you can you sort of stop the bleeding on a population. So the other thing I think it's important just to, to categorize is, you know, there's a lot of the the, the lower mainland, you know, we've, we've been coming out of that conversation, the lower mainland versus, you know, what happens up in the north and our realities are disconnected. And sometimes that's also unfair. I mean, it's not everybody that's in the lower mainland that's against the things that, uh, you know, that we hold dear, like hunting and fishing and, you know, wildlife populations. Um but it sometimes feels, and it plays out in, in, in policy debates, and Micah talked about, you know, trying to get his, uh, his fellow caucus members, um, you know, around the ideas of some of these, these things in wildlife management or managing, you know, forests, et cetera. And it's sometimes tough to get them to, to take a look at it objectively the way that we see it. And the reason is there's a lot of social implications that come into that. When you look at wolves as they're portrayed, um, you know, throughout the media landscape, um, you've got like wolves in, you know, Game of Thrones. You've got, uh, you know, Two Socks and Dances with Wolves and The Jungle Book and, and television and Disney. And we've anthropomorphized them to a, to a level where they're not, they're no longer, um, you know, carnal predators. Um, they're more like house pets. And, and that, that's, the, that's the unfortunate part is I understand the need, at, you know, for a resonance, you know, with a wildlife uh, population. I understand the attraction. I see it every single time. All of us in this panel, you know, when we go out hunting and we go out and spend time in it, I'm excited to see, a, you know, if I see a marten or a fisher or if I see a, a hawkery in eagle, it doesn't matter how many times that happens. I'm engaged in that. Um, the difference is, is that I understand that there's a, there's a natural cycle that plays out that's vicious and, and ends lives. You know, I, I guess I'd leave it with this. I, I think that when we look at the people that really struggle with us killing wolves, if wolves were just killing wolves or wolves were dying naturally, it would be okay. It's not that the wolves die. It's that in this case, wolves die and there's a who attached to it, meaning someone killed them, not something killed them. If it was something that was killing them, it would be different. It's a someone that's killing them. And I think that's the part that people get tripped up on. Anyway, I think, uh, I think that's uh, a good place to leave it. There's a lot of ground to cover. Um, there's a lot of subjects that we haven't hit on, you know, tropic cascades and surplus killings um, and, and other things that get thrown into this mix. Um, you know, but I think for now, I think it's uh, time for us to look at some final thoughts. All right, why don't we start with you, Mike Morris? Uh, you know, like I said, getting the balance right. And the parts affect the whole and the whole affects the parts. We need to look at the entire province, the, all the ecology of the province in order to figure out exactly how many wolves, you know, are, are necessary in the environment that we have versus the number of ungulates that we have at all species. And uh, the sooner we start doing that, the better. And, and the resource sector has a big part to play in this. Um, because a lot of the impacts to the land has been from resource development, whether it's oil and gas or forestry or mining or whatever the, the, the heck it is. So uh, we've got a lot of work ahead of us to uh, come up with an ecologically based management program that looks after all of the, those aspects. Michael Schneider. There's a few words that I keep using. One of them, for instance, is value. We know how much board foot of uh, lumbers is worth. We know gold, we know oil, gas. What we don't know is how much is a moose worth. When you when you try to manage the landscape in the absence absence of evaluating all the different things on the land, you're not managing for all the things on the land. You're only managing for the things that you put value on. 
So the forest sector has a very legitimate value for, for job creation, for economic uh, activity and such. But there's other values out there and they're not captured. So the other one is objectives and goals. I keep going back to those. Um, we're, we don't have any density objectives for, for wildlife. And in the absence, absence of that, how do, how do we manage? We, we have managers that are given a task and they're doing the best they can. And, and you know, they have programs and studies and, and inventory monitoring. They do um, cow-calf ratios and such. At the end of the day, that obviously while they were doing all this work over the, I don't know how many years, uh, our populations have declined. So I, I don't ever want to blame them for it because they weren't given the tools or levers to to manage towards uh, any kind of goal because A, there were no goals, B, they're not given the levers to pull them to get there. So if you have competing interest on the land, let's recognize that. And then if the public says, okay, you know what, forget about wildlife, forget about fish, we don't really care, we want... Uh, this to be a, a forest plantation at the end of the day to produce forestry jobs only we you know there should be no tourism or recreational values then so be it but that was never I don't think British Columbians have ever signed on to that one I think it's a very well done uh, lobbying job by interest sector and that's fine that's their job they're they're in business to make money uh, but at the end of the day I think whoever makes the decisions should make the decision for everybody and and look at all the values on the land, create objectives that are fair to all, and then give the managers and the biologists and decision makers the tools and levers to get there. Stephen? Uh, We can't manage one species by science and one by emotion. And that's where somebody we all know quite well said that we have to get the balance right. I think he's sitting here. I think he wrote a paper on that, didn't he? (laughs) I believe that should be who I'm referencing. Do Do I have to put that in the footnotes? We, we we can't and um, unfortunately that is it, it seems to be the way that things are going in, on social media and in, in the public eyes we talked about the disconnect not it's not so much a, a lack of caring about the animal because a hunter and a trapper absolutely loves the animal in a, in a different way we understand them and we understand that there's a need to, to manage. I've never gone out and taken an animal and not felt a, a, a wide range of emotion from the exhilaration when you spot it to the excitement when you're, you're, you're stocking up on it. And then I'd, I'd be lying if, if I said that there was no sadness after I pulled the trigger and I realized I've just taken a life. But I realized in order to manage one species, we have to manage all. And once we find that balance of how we're going to do that, we're, things are going to start to come together. And as Michael Schneider said, we all have to sit at the same table and put a value on just what we want to see on the landscape. And we, we hear it all the time. There's, there's that kill them all attitude. And I, I can't stand that. And, some hunters are our own worst enemies when we're spewing that vitriol, that that hate at the wolves for, as you said, being wolves. They hunt, they kill the same way we do. What makes us different? We're a predator on the landscape the same way they are. Should we vilify ourselves for doing what comes natural? 
definitely not. The same way we shouldn't vilify all wolves and threat bears and cats and any of the predators. They're doing what comes naturally. And we we need to to, to educate instead of alienate. So I, I hope one day we can we can get to that point instead of before. We all need to get to that point where we we manage for an objective. And the objective should be the betterment of the species as a whole. All species as a whole. Well, there you go. All right. Uh, the closing segment of our podcast is called Final Thoughts, and that rests with me. So uh, wolves are revered and reviled, protected and persecuted, loved and feared. They possess in equal measure traits that equally compel and confound people on both sides of this debate. They are social animals that form strong bonds. They are intelligent and nurturing, but they can also be brutal and violent, killing rival packs or even their own pack members. They are efficient, resilient, and determined hunters that are capable of causing significant loss to prey populations. Theodore Roosevelt once referred to wolves as beasts of waste and desolation. Perhaps it was in these early admonishments of wolves he was forced to confront the waste and desolation committed by people. Biologist David Meese said wolves are neither sinner nor saint, yet there is a tendency in people to categorize wolves and their actions as either good or bad in an effort to understand, interpret, condemn, or condone their behavior. Wolves do not need or seek our forgiveness or gratitude as they fulfill their role on the land. They are unbound by moral or emotional consequence, nor compelled or restrained by intellectual, religious, or ideological concerns. A wolf's intent is best viewed through its biological and natural instincts for survival, not through the considerations of moral imperatives and human ethics. Like elk, moose, and caribou, wolves are constituents of a dynamic natural landscape that we hold and manage as a public trust. In our stewardship of that land, we have an obligation to manage for the survival and success of wolves as much as the animals they prey upon. Aldo Leopold wrote that only the mountain has lived long enough to listen objectively to the howl of a wolf. I believe we should all desire a wilderness with wolves. Like the mountain, we should find in their howls a reminder we are joined as hunters and travelers on the same landscape.